Welcome to Hammerama, the new podcast which views the world of hammer horror from opposite sides of the world. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Steve from Maryland. And our opening track was the intro to the amazing House of the Gorgon by the equally amazing Reber Clark. Hammerama is a subsidiary of Stephen's award-nominated Diecast movie podcast, and as such, the subject of our discussions will similarly be decided by the cast of a die. Stephen pitched a four, which is the science fiction films of Hammer, and this time we are starting at the end of a series. And what a series. Join us down in the underground. as we excavate the third and final Hammer-adapted misadventures of the head of the British rocket group in Quatermass and the Pit. The scenes you are about to see are more incredible than anything today's science or fiction ever imagined. Sometime in the near future, when we least expect it, they will come. Cities will burn. Mankind will panic. Our world will tremble. When the invasion from another time and another place begins, disbelief will be shattered and the truth of an ancient past will be revealed. When it occurs, you will see men turn killers by mysterious power. Because you are different. Women will be defiled by the invaders from outer space. It's Barbara. She's the one. Scientists will vainly attempt to save civilization. My duty now is to quieten public alarm. And you, don't keep your damn paws out of things. Could happen in your lifetime. Ah! See it before it's too late. Oh, it's a wonderful film. When prehistoric skeletons are discovered during an expansion of the London Underground, paleontologist Dr. Rooney, James Donald, played him believes them to be the remnants of early man. But the strange metal object found with them is tougher to explain. And Professor Bernard Quatermass, played by Andrew Kier, thinks it's evidence that the creatures come from space. More digging in the area reveals the corpses of actual Martians and a strange energy field that sends London into a panic. That's really well done, Stephen, because as we were discussing before, this is not an easy film to synopsize. We're going to talk about our thoughts on the film. Uh, Stephen, did you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. And um, as I mentioned with our first episode in Horror of Dracula or Dracula, a lot of these Hammer films either I have not seen in a long time or have not seen at all. And this is one, it was a first time viewing for me, though I did know the plot from hearing other podcasts that, that basically spoiled everything, which is something I believe you and I will be trying to avoid. 
As much as we possibly can, yes. And but I'm feeling a bit of suspense here, Stephen, because we still don't know, or I still don't know, if you actually enjoyed this film or not. Well, what can you say when you have Barbara Shelley playing a prominent role as Barbara Judd? And, and I, I like about her role is that it's atypical for a 60s female lead in a science fiction action horror film in that where she is fully realized you know she's not the damsel in distress she's going in there she's inquisitive she's exploring and everything she portrayed it so well with the intelligence you could see and where she was an equal with professor quatermass because quatermass and her would have discussions and talk about different things and he would go to her over dr roney and she was going out and digging up this information because she was inquisitive also. And I think really the two of them were the stars of the movie with James Donald. Even though he's top billed, I think of him as being the third in the pecking order. And um, I, really, I really enjoyed all three of them because nobody put her down except for the army people who put down all the civilians. <laughs> and the army was personified by Colonel Breen, played deliciously by Julian Glover. I mean, you know, you just, you just have to love him. He plays... An a-hole so well. <laughs> he might, he's probably the kindest, nicest person in the world, but he could just come in there and he's just like, oh, this is what we're going to do. Forget evidence, forget facts. He has in his mind, this is the way it's going to be, and you could. it don't matter what you show him otherwise, it's that way to the bitter end. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. I actually have a few things to say about Julian Glover later on, but uh, you're absolutely right. I think describing his, his performance as delicious is just spot on. But I enjoyed the film. I, mean, I love science fiction movies, so I was already an easy person to sway into it, the special effects and how it's all being unraveled for you. And I thought um, the director, um, Roy Ward Baker, did a very good job of setting it all up and following through with Nigel Neal's script and showing what had to be done. I think um, Baker said that the script was so wonderful, he didn't have to do anything to it except cast and shoot it. It's funny, if everyone describes Quatermass and the Pit as, as science fiction, and, and obviously it is, but I think of it as folk horror. And I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy it so much. It's not a genre that Hammer went into terribly often, but this is my favourite example, and it's maybe ironic to, to describe Quatermass and the Pit as folk horror because it's set in a central London tube station, which is about as far away from, you know, the non-mechanised, uncrowded rural settings that you'd usually expect uh, with the folk horror genre. Within the five million year span of the story, we get to hear accounts from pre-Roman, medieval and pre-industrial times when the same ground above the Martian capsule long before it ever became a tube station, when the ground was disturbed and it releases the same race memories and apparitions. And this, this ages old tradition of the supernatural reaching out through the millennia to affect the present is exactly what folk horror is to uh, me. But the first thing that drew me to uh, Quatermass was uh, my lifelong love of 1970s era Doctor Who, which shamelessly, uh -huh. 
homages uh, Quasimess multiple times. Two of my favourite Doctor Who stories are solidly in the genre of folk horror, and they are The Demons from 1971 and The Image of the Fendal from 1977. And these both greedily mine the rich vein of imagination from Quatermass and The Pit. And it's a credit to Nigel Neal that I sort of struggled to fully understand the concept of an alien race influencing man's subconscious and evolution throughout millions and millions of years when I saw the concepts repurposed for those two Doctor Who stories. But when I saw this film for the first time, which is the origin, I got the idea straight away because Nigel Neal just presents it so elegantly and effectively and he never seems to resort to the need for the info dump. That's what I love about science fiction movies that treat the audience with respect. Mm. Mm -hmm. Where this film, even though I just saw it recently, I think for you, you saw it when you were younger, and I think for a lot of people that saw it when they're younger, it still holds up for multiple viewings. You're able to catch different nuances of the script, of the characters, and of the portrayals and the cinematography. But definitely see Quatermass in the pit. If you're a Doctor Who fan, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, Stephen. And you've sort of led me on to talking about my favourite moment. And it's right at the very end. It's, In fact, it's the end credits. I'm not trying to be funny, but although you could actually frivolously draw a line, a comparison between, you know, this scene of the wordless, exhausted Quatermass and Barbara Judd with the post credit scene in the very first Marvel Avengers film. In that brief scene, although it's played for laughs, our heroes are all together, but they're very much apart and they're silent and they're drained and no one can even attempt to start a conversation even Tony Stark. And we later find out, speaking of Stark, that um, one of them even goes on to suffer post-traumatic stress because of what they've just been through in New York. So when we see Quatermass and Barbara Judd, they are similarly shattered. And there's an added awkwardness there as well. They can't meet each other's eyes even, because I think they're both aware on some level that although she hasn't been able to help it. She's actually just tried to kill him. And the terribly British Professor Quatermass has actually had to resort to punching a woman unconscious and then had to witness someone's sacrifice. Um, and in fact, we discover in other media that Quatermass actually takes early retirement afterwards. So this scene is incredibly awkward. It's silent. It's bleak and unexpected, but I think it is one of the best endings to a Hammer film that I've ever seen. So much is unsaid. In fact, everything is unsaid, but it just conveys how those two characters would feel and, and in fact, how the whole of London probably feels. I, I like that, Alistair, and it's almost like a precursor to the downer endings uh, but the, at least that 70s science fiction where a lot of endings ended up, I think this is one of those that you could read it one way, you could read it the other way, you could read it both at the same time. I think it ending's very gray. Mm. And my favorite moment, it's kind of weird, but it also takes place near the end, is the crowd being taken over by the Force. And they're able to use telekinetic powers, and their whole thing is to destroy those that are different than them. And when you look at that, when you get the mob 
when they're all running and they're trying to get away and they get pulled apart when Judd and Quatermass get pulled apart from each other. It shows you so many different things. How dangerous mob mentality is. How dangerous when people that are, are in one group think that they're better than the other group. And those images and that message is still important today. And I think that that's an important message. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we've said that we aren't going to just repeat things that listeners can read, but I think it's fairly well known that Nigel Neal was strongly influenced by um, race riots that took place in London at the end of the 1950s. And this uh, story came about with him trying to understand why human beings would treat each other like that just because one group was perceived as being different. I find it interesting when writers try to tie in past experiences that happen in reality. The other thing I want to give credit to is the special effects. You know, being that this is a Hammer movie and we know the budgets on Hammer movies are are sometimes (laughs) not the best. And one day we're going to get to the bats, but (laughs) (laughs) we're not there yet. No, we're not. But the spaceship, I really enjoyed the design of the spaceship and how it was set up and how it was crafted and a lot of the effects involving that. The aliens themselves got the image across. It was able to work. They showed some footage of race memories with the aliens from back when they're on Mars and things are happening there. And it, I like that effect also with the cinematography. And overall, I enjoyed it. I think it was very effective. Mm, sure, sure. No, I, I um, totally agree with you about the design of the spaceship. Um, the first time I saw it, I thought it looked a little bit too much like an aerodynamically designed racing car or something. But when I watched it again this time, it really struck me that no, it didn't. It looked more like a carapace of a beetle. And that's, you know, absolutely spot on for the kind of impression that they're, that they're trying to give. And it's blue. which is really unexpected as well. So at a time when most spaceships either looked like flying saucers or space rockets, I think it was a really brave um, design move. I'm going to go on to talk about the reviews now, Stephen. I've got one from 1967, a, a contemporary one, and then I've got one from 2002. So I'll start with the 1967 one first. So writing in the Times of London, John Russell Taylor wrote... After a slowish beginning, which shows up deficiencies of acting and direction, things really start hopping when a mysterious missile-like object discovered in a London excavation proves to be a relic of prehistoric Martian attempts to colonize Earth. The development of the situation is scrupulously worked out, and the film is genuinely gripping, even when the power of evil is shown personified in a hazy, glowing outline, a spectacle, as a rule, more likely to provoke titters than gasps of horror. And in 2002, the late James Roshi, who was the then in-house film critic for Netflix, wrote, This is a movie with, to be blunt, a $20 budget, but with billion-dollar ideas. So really, those two reviews all those years apart are kind of saying the same thing, I think. I think so. I think they um, hit it on the head, dealing with effects and the ideas, Mm -hmm. but didn't talk about how well they were in my opinion, portrayed. Definitely. 
Now, shall we move on to the poster, Stephen? Would you like to take this one first? So the poster is one from 5 million years to Earth. So it's the mm. U.S. one. Yeah. And Alistair, you did pick this one out. It's different than the one I have in my books. I love it in that it looks like it's a newspaper headline, you know, torn, literally torn from the headlines. And then you see an image of a female with circles coming out from her, like the Spider-Man using his, when Spider-Man uses his Spidey sense or when Daredevil <laughs> uses his radar sense. And I think that's trying to get across the telekinetic powers, in my opinion, you know, mm -hmm. coming from them. And then you got basically looks like London getting destroyed and you see different images of Quatermass, people falling down, the aliens, um, either in the skeletal form or the alien in its projected form at the end. I think this poster is gripping design of it. I like the setup of it. And I think this one, it's, it's nice. I think it definitely sets the mood for what the movie is a lot better than the poster we talked about for horror of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> that was also done by the U S which was, as we said before, a little bit lacking in its portrayal, but this is about 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the U S poster design is starting to catch up of what the movie's actually about, thankfully. This is a very rare, maybe even one-time-only situation where I have picked a different version to the British poster done by the always amazing Tom Chantrell, who is one of my all-time favourite artists and certainly my favourite Hammer poster artist. When it comes to film posters, I'm, I'm always drawn to art, which is as much graphic design as it is illustration. And I think this is a perfect example. Those concentric circles, which you described, Stephen, as the um, spidey sense radiating from that eye is sheer genius because it actually draws you into the poster and it creates a foundation for the rest of the imagery as well. Because if, if you look at the top of the poster, you've got a male and a female figure, which I think is meant to represent Quatermass and Barbara Judd. They are inverted. They are literally upside down. And this would look utterly wrong in any other kind of situation. But here, because of those concentric circles, you can see that they're actually swirling around the center of the image. They're caught in a vortex. And this emphasizes the sense of panic and chaos, as well as sort of grounding this illustrative element. And it also allows the artist to depict yards of female leg, which late 60s, obviously, that's what they wanted to do. Now, the orange of the flame down at the bottom is beautifully contrasted with the bluish figures which are also at the um, at the base of the illustration and this is a color combination which is still criminally overused in today's movie posters if you look at most uh, Marvel movie posters for example you'll see that orange and bluish contrast sometimes it's the only two colors that that are used but I'll balance that by saying that I love the five million years to earth logo type it's striking and i knew it reminded me of something but i just couldn't work out what and then i got down my novelization by donald f glute of the empire strikes back and the empire strikes back branding is red against white on that novelization and it, it really does look very very much like five million years to earth even down to the bars extending on either side of the letter e 
So yes, I really, really like this poster. It shows a maturity and, and a sophistication, which um, a movie like this really deserves. Now, as promised, I'm going to talk about Julian Glover. This is our Meeting the Stars section, which I think 90% of the time you're probably going to take this section, Stephen, because you've been very lucky to meet a lot of Hammer stars. But this particular example, I was very, very honoured to briefly meet Colonel Breen himself, Julian Glover, at a Doctor Who convention in Glasgow way back in 1990. So Julian Glover, a Bond villain, an Indiana Jones villain, an Imperial all-terrain armoured transport commander, he already had really serious genre cred. But he was, he was at a, a Doctor Who convention because he'd also played two wonderful roles in classic Doctor Who. He was King Richard the Lionheart in 1965, and then Count Scarlione, a.k.a. Scaroth, last of the Jagoroth, in 1979. Those are two fantastic roles. Glover was already considered something of acting royalty when we had him at the convention, and he was fearlessly honest in giving his opinion of the two doctors, William Hartnell and Tom Baker, who he had worked with. And this struck me as, as a very courageous thing to do at a Doctor Who convention. But he was also equally honest about himself, about his own performances, and he brought truckloads of charm so he won us all over and he gained extra points for praising Sean Connery to the skies who of course he had just worked with in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and being a Scottish audience of course this this went over pretty well. The interesting thing was that the actor Nicholas Courtney, who of course played Doctor Who's beloved brigadier, was present and he defended uh, Tom Baker after Julian Glover's mild put-down of the actor. And this struck me as absolutely fascinating because there's no doubt at all in my mind that the Doctor Who character of Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart was very, very strongly based on Julian Glover's portrayal of Colonel Breen. So... I felt as if I was actually witnessing a Doctor Who Quatermass crossover from an alternative universe, which never actually <laughs> happened. <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to go straight on to the merchandise. What I'm going to talk about, Stephen, is a huge favorite of mine, and I can't recommend this strongly enough to you. This is a uh, 1996 BBC radio drama called The Quatermass Memoirs. And it's available as a download from Audible. This is Nigel Neal's final Quatermass work, and it features the return of Andrew Keir in the lead role. And it revolves around the retired Professor Quatermass being reluctantly interviewed by a young journalist. Quatermass has taken early retirement. He's absolutely had enough of the death and destruction that his work has, has wrought on the world. So he gives his guilt-ridden recollections of his first three adventures. And as he does this, clips from the original BBC television serials, which of course the Hammer films were based on, are played. They're interspersed. And while this is happening, we also get to hear from Nigel Neal himself 
himself as he gives his own perspectives on writing them and the actual historical events happening back in the 50s which inspired him to write the original serials. It's insightful, it's thought-provoking and it's beautifully performed. I think Andrew Keir is even better here as as Quatermass. You can tell there's a real shame just under the surface of his reserved exterior for what he's done. Not willingly, but his explorations into science have caused some pretty devastating things. So the Quatermass Memoirs is a must-listen for any fans of these films. And it maybe cements the fact that perhaps he is the definitive Professor Quatermass. I'm not going to argue with that. Everybody has their different opinions on Quatermass, and uh, if you whatever one you think is definitive, that works. It's just like James Bonds. Like everybody will pick their who's their favorite Bond, and who's their favorite their favorite Doctor from Doctor Who. I'm like I, I love them all because they all bring different portrayal, and that actor has different strengths and different weaknesses. We know yours. Um, I'm going to wait till I see the other Quatermass ones before I decide. You'll have a lot of, an awful lot of Quatermasses to um, see, or is that Quatermass I? I'm not sure what the plural there will be. I really think they're missing a merchandise tie-in with the U.S. audience in particular with Quatermass. They, in order to drive people nuts, because a lot of people call Quatermass what, Alistair? <laughs> they call it? No, I can't even say it, Stephen. You're going to have to say it. <laughs> Right. They, they call Quatermass Quartermass. So they should come out with the Quatermass two-headed quarter. So you have the Dunlavy Quatermass on the one side and the Kerr Quatermass on the other side. So you could display whichever Quatermass on your quarter that you want to have. Uh, that would be great. Or you can make a set of four Quatermass quarters, <laughs> you know, with the Quatermasses. And then, of course, you could have the movies. Maybe make it five. I mean, just you could go to town with it. So that way everybody could be looking for the Quatermass quarters. And then uh, this tongue twister would drive people nuts. <laughs> but the more yeah. I think about it, the more I think that there's gold to mine and them their hills. I, th <laughs> I think you might be right. I think that's actually genius. That is utter genius. I love it. Please, Stephen, if you get that up and running, put me down for a box load of Quatermass quarters. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> just getting my composure back. I'm just the same guy that brought you the Dracula socks. But those are real. <laughs> yep, Stephen. Stephen knocks it out of the park again in the merchandise section. <sighs> okay, I'm going to try and be serious here because I'm going to talk about connections. Now, at first glance, this section would seem pretty straightforward this month because Quatermass in the Pit is the third and final Hammer adaptation of the original BBC serials. But given that Andrew Keir also plays the lead character in the Quatermass Memoirs radio play, I'm going to extend my analysis of this just a little. Now, at the end of the Quatermass Memoirs, he expresses a desire to return to London which the young journalist, called Mandy, strongly warns him against doing. But we know that he does anyway, because in the fourth and final Quatermass story made in 1979, either called The Quatermass Conclusion, or just Quatermass, depending on which version you saw, we know that he does this. And here, uh, society is shown to be on the verge of complete collapse, with street gangs and violence ruling London. The radio play actually draws a 
previously unmentioned direct link between this situation and Quatermass and the Pit because it implies that the events of Hobbs Lane have actually continued to influence the psyche of Londoners through the decades that have passed, particularly young people continuing to draw them towards violence and societal division, which leads to the situation which Quatermass finds. So I find that fascinating that between this third Quatermass film and Quatermass's final appearance, we have the implication that although the Hobbs End incident appears to be over, that the trauma that it's inflicted on Londoners continues to be active in their subconscious and continues to be passed on. I also have to mention that although Andrew Keir stars in the Quatermass memoirs, he's actually recounting events from the television serials, not the films. And these are events that the Bernard Quatermass we see in the Hammer film could never actually have witnessed. So either Andrew Keir is playing yet another version of the character, different to his film portrayal, or there is a third Quaterverse where the Hammer and the BBC versions are somehow amalgamated. Now, bear with me because I love this stuff, even if no one else does. I'll extend this idea by extrapolating on a remark that um, actor-writer and superfan Mark Gatiss makes about the purging of the Martian Hive sequence. Now, in an interview, he expresses a preference for the TV version of this effect scene and he says he wishes that it could be cut into the, the Hammer film version, that it could be swapped. So I'll go a little bit further and say, well, why not intercut them? If the purpose of the race purge, as we find out, is to destroy and expel mutations from Martian society, then perhaps that's what the TV versions of the Martians actually are. For a handy guide to the visual differences between the Hammer film version and the BBC television version of the Martians and their spacecraft, refer to my book, Infogothic, an unauthorised graphic guide to Hammer Horror, page 56. Otherwise, I'm certain you'll be able to find plenty of reference online. And finally, I'm going to close with this clip from episode 3 of the 1988 Doctor Who serial, Remembrance of the Daleks. All right, men, follow that, follow me back. Professor Jensen, Miss Williams, follow me. Yeah, vote. I mean, Professor Jensen? Of course, Miss Williams. I wish Bernard was here. British rocket group's got its own problems. So it's tempting to think that this links Hammer directly with Doctor Who, but sadly, it's more likely a reference to the BBC serials. I think you've came up with four different connections, right? I got carried away, Stephen. <laughs> no, that means you did four quarters of Quatermass. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. Well, because <laughs> to atone for that, you can give your final thoughts first. Oh, thank you. Um, You're welcome. I really enjoyed, like I said earlier, I really enjoyed watching Quatermass in the Pit for the first time. I'm going to probably watch it again sometime in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved the, the actors' portrayals, but the one thing I forgot to mention when they were talking, when I was talking about the effects, the guy that was operating the drill mm. that set off the vibrations from the spaceship, which gave him the idea of the imprinted memories being re-triggered and the powers, and he goes away from the thing screaming, and everything is being moved around in in the area. At first, you think it's the spaceship doing it all. You don't realize it's person himself with mm. his telekinetic powers being unleashed, carry style, but without control. As he goes and he runs out of the underground, 
out in the town and you start to see the effects go wherever he is, that's when you start to realize he is the epicenter mm-hmm. of the whole thing. And I really like that because they don't come out and say it to you. Like as you brought up earlier, you can see it happen. And then you realize it's him because it's almost like a little bit of a detective story yeah. as they try to figure out those little pieces. I liked all four of the leads, I mean, two main leads, especially in it. It's definitely a great film. And now Alistair, I have a question for you. I'm going to get mm. a quarter for your conclusion. <laughs> like a penny for your faults, a quarter for your conclusion. Well, you might regret leaning on that so heavily, Stephen, but my conclusion is actually going to address that. Quite a mess in the pit. Says British as Union Jacks, Fish Fingers, Double Decker Buses, complaining about the weather. But I love how this film or this film series highlights the cultural differences between myself and my much-loved friends in your part of the world. One of the very few original pieces of Hammer memorabilia that I own is the original press book for Five Million Years to Earth, and I picked it up in Australia. So Quatermass in the Pit was no doubt also called that in my own country, and probably every other country in the world that wasn't British. And this is famously because the name of the lead character was deemed to not have any cachet, outside of Britain, although this has obviously changed since. And the name Bernard Quatermass highlights the endlessly fascinating, to me anyway, contrasts between US and UK pronunciation like nothing else. Now, my dad happens to be called Bernard, and it's not an uncommon name at all where we originally come from in Scotland, although there it's actually pronounced Bernard. But in the US, My friends generally give this pretty ordinary name a touch of class by emphasizing the second syllable to become Stephen. Go. Bernard. Nice. Now, when pronouncing the second name, the surname, the temptation to add a second R seems almost irresistible, and it becomes... Quartermass. (laughs) Yeah. So... Perhaps my American pals are defaulting to Quartermaster, or maybe you're even talking about Alan Quartermain. But hey, absolutely no judgment from me, because here at Hammerama, we are a proudly international safe place. And I have a Kiwi accent, and I have absolutely no right to besmirch anyone. So those are my closing thoughts uh, on this amazing film. As we said in the previous episode, our MO is to try very hard not to just simply repeat things that can easily be read or heard elsewhere. We like to give our own hopefully unique views on the films that uh, we're discussing. Do you have anything else to add, Stephen? There's one thing we have to still do, Alistair. Oh, yes. I got to roll the die. Five. Five is Hammer prehistory. And I'm going to suggest... One million years BC. So we did five million years to Earth. Now we're going one million years back <laughs> ah. to BC. Should we maybe imply that this is this is all being beautifully planned and put together by you and I? But in fact, it isn't. It's it's complete chance. It is the throw of a die, ladies and gentlemen. So next time, join us when we talk about doe skin bikinis and dinosaurs. What more could you possibly want from a movie? It's, it's hammer. 
What else could you want with glamour? <laughs> <laughs>